Well, I want to welcome you from wherever you may be joining us at Christ Journey Church, whether it be right here at our Coral Gables campus. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, welcome Coral Gables, my home. I love you guys. Or whether it be down south at our Kindle campus, we love you guys. We are praying for you. Or whether it be anywhere around the world at Church Online, we are praying for you. And I greet you this morning in the spirit of unity. And I want to ask this question today to prime the pump for what we're going to be talking about today. What fills you with awe and wonder? What fills you with awe and wonder? My two kids, Hannah and Levi, they fill me with awe and wonder daily. I love watching their imaginations and their creativity blossom. Nothing captivates my attention more than when my daughter, my three-year-old daughter, sits me down to tell me a story, or when my 17-month-old son, Levi, wants to play catch with the ball. It's amazing. It's amazing to me. And I, I should also tell you now that, uh, that we also filled with, uh, we're, we're also filled with awe and wonder at the expectation of our third child coming uh, in January. <laughs> So we feel really excited about that. Uh, I feel like I'm standing right on the edge of chaos uh, now. So be praying for me and my family. But, uh, but what fills you with awe and wonder? Let me guess. I know for some of you, this fills you with awe and wonder. M-I-C-K-E-Y. Am I right? I mean, I know some of you for a fact. Disney fills you with awe and wonder because you've told me so. But let me confess, I, I'm not that much of a Disney guy. Uh, I hope you still allow me to serve as your campus pastor, but I, I'm not that much of a Disney guy. I've never quite understood the magic. I appreciate good storytelling, but I, I don't really quite understand that. So last January, my wife and I decided to gander up north to Orlando. We took our kids just before my daughter turned three and cost me $100 just to walk inside the park. We, we decided to see what the magic was all about. This is my first time there. And our very own group's pastor, Pastor Desi, required that if we go, that we need to arrive in front of the castle, not just to the parking lot, but in front of the castle at 8 a.m. to get our seats as close as possible for the Let the Magic Begin show at 8.55, to which I wanted to respond to him. Desi, do you know how hard it is to get a almost three-year-old and almost one-year-old awake and active and ready to go to arrive at the Magic Kingdom and get our seat in front of the castle at 8 a.m.? Like, do, this, do any of you have, have any of you done that? It is nearly impossible. It is like a modern-day miracle just to make that happen. But we did it, and we got our seat as close to the castle as possible, and we started the countdown from 30, and immediately my, my attention shifted to my daughter, Hannah. How would she appreciate this? Would she really, would she really like it? Is this something that, she, or would we be would we be walking outside of the park five minutes from now, running away from all of this madness, or would she actually enjoy it? Well, what do you think happened? She loved it. You're exactly right. Her little mind filled with awe and wonder for the next five minutes and every minute thereafter that we were at the park, to which I want to share with you and ask you, what fills you with awe and wonder? What fills your life with a sense of awe and wonder? It seems that children live in this constant state all the time, always discovering the world around them. Their very worldview exists beyond themselves. Even their care requires a full dependency upon another person. Whereas for mature adults like you and me, we can do anything by our, our own hand. We can quite literally go a day, a week, a month, a year, even multiple years without ever experiencing life beyond our own worldview. That's why moments I think of awe and wonder for us mature adults become fewer and farther between as we grow older. Our desire for discovery diminishes as the world around us becomes more defined. 
our need for companionship lessens as we become more self-reliant. Even our belief in God risks becoming less reasonable over time as we become more self-sufficient. I mean, some of you might even ask, why would I need God if I could do whatever I want? And that's a legitimate question that we all must ask in our adulthood years. And I think we put a lot of stock in the pithy truisms that swirl around in our culture. Be all you can be. You only live once. Keep going. Keep striving. Keep producing. Does this sound familiar with any of you? It certainly does with me. I live in this tension every single day. Every day I wake up and I live in the tension between living for myself and my own magic kingdom or living for the one who created me. And I think this is the the essence of the culture in which we live. I think this is the essence of the human experience. It is the very essence of temptation and sin itself. If you go all the way back to the very beginning of Genesis in chapter three, the core temptation was for us to eventually be like God, that we would want to live like God, not in the good sense of the term, but as we would want to live as God of our own lives. I wrestle with this every single day. And I think more than likely all of us wrestle in this tension. I want my own way on my own timetable. I want it how I want it, when I want it to happen. I want to make this three-foot circle around me my kingdom, and I want to be the king who sits on that throne. But I think, as all of us know as well, the flip side of that coin, as we encounter life's trials, life's difficulties, we encounter hurt from other people, hurt ourselves, we discover that it only leads to a sense of isolation that what promises satisfaction never quite gets there. Ruling your kingdom for a period of time may lead you to feel a sense of awe and wonder over what you can do and what you can make and create by your own hand for the sake of your own glory, but ultimately it never leads where you want to go, which is ironically what all of us are seeking every single day, and that is real and true satisfaction. Real and true satisfaction. At the end of the day, we want to know that our needs will be met. We want to know that we'll find love one day. We want to know that our life will count for something bigger than ourselves. Those are great things. Those are things that I believe God instilled within every single one of us when he created us in his image. But when we make idols of them in our own image, then that's when things begin to break down and we begin to live isolated lives rather than satisfying lives. Every generation lives within this tension. Every single one of us live within it. Even the early church strayed away from its early mission to follow and make Jesus Lord. In fact, if you read the the New Testament letters, you see that it's constantly trying to bring the church back. It's constantly trying to bring us back because our default setting is to go this other direction. But the good news in the midst of all of it, and what I want to talk about today, and what we're going to explore as we unpack Revelation chapters four and five, is that God did not smack the early church around God doesn't smack us around, but in fact, God did something radically different and perhaps unexpected. God demonstrated once again his constant grace, his constant mercy for the church then, for the church now, for every single one of us. A a witness that, that finds its culmination in the person of Jesus Christ. And I would suggest in these two chapters, in Revelation chapters four and five, when the disciple John received a vision from God. Now, I, this, it gets a, th- this vision that I'm about to share with you, it's, it's kind of bizarre, and it's, uh, it's a bit unbelievable when you read it at the outset, but hear this as John getting a glimpse into something phenomenal. 
into something so unexpected that John and the church then and the church even now never ever expected to receive. But here, God opens up his throne room to the church, his throne room, I think for two reasons. One is because God wants to show us, God wants to show the church then and show every single one of us now that God is God and that we're not. And then as much as we want to make this the most important thing in the world, God, in fact, is the most important thing in the world. And we see it in how he demonstrates his character and how he shows us this vision from his throne room. But the second thing is that God wants to demonstrate himself as a trustworthy God, as someone that you can trust, like a good chef who opens up her kitchen and shows, shows those people around who want to know that, that this is a safe kitchen, a safe place for you to come and dine and enjoy life and fellowship with one another. God does the very same thing from his throne room. Now, the book of Revelation, as Mark stated in the very beginning of the, our experience together, it is, a, it is an apocalyptic book, which means that there are things hidden underneath the surface that could be difficult on the, on the front end, just looking at it from, from a surface perspective. But as we dive in together, my hope is that as we read these two chapters together, which are a lot, my hope is that at the end of these two chapters, you will come to see God's character for you, for the church, for the world as God being one who is for us and not against us, my hope is that these two chapters will be much less confusing for you. And this book may even become less confusing for you and it will become more awe-inspiring. And as we discover this, this wonder-filled life that God intends for us, that we'll get a chance, an opportunity to live into a wonderful life that God really desires for every single one of us. And so if you have your Bible with me, open to Revelation chapter four. We're going to begin in verse one. There's a lot here, but we'll unpack it slowly and we'll get through it together. And so I hope that you just keep your mind open, use your imagination with me. And then if you have questions, I encourage you to read this for yourself. This is, these are the two most majestic chapters in all of scripture, in my opinion. And so let's begin in chapter four, verse one together. This is John saying, then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven, which is bizarre for anyone. And it's especially bizarre for John, as we'll see in just a few moments. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The same voice that spoke to him in Revelation chapters two and three is speaking to him again. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly, whoosh, I was in the spirit. This is John talking now. And I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. So immediately, John wants us to know that this is, this is a throne, not, not an empty throne, but this is a throne with someone sitting on it. Someone's reigning from this throne. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones, like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled the throne like a rainbow. 24 thrones surrounded this one throne, and 24 elders sat on that throne. We can, we can understand this to mean that each one of these 24 thrones represented the 12 tribes of Israel, as well as the 12 disciples of Jesus, now coming together as the fullness of all of God's people in the church. So that's what's surrounding God on the throne. And they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder, the, this glory and the splendor of God being, being described as close as possible in human terms. And in front of the throne were seven torches and burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. This is such a beautiful image. And I wish we had five extra minutes in my message to tell you more about it. But I just want to tell you this, that in apocalyptic literature, water typically represents chaos. And here in the throne room, which some of you may be thinking, how is, how is this there? But here in the throne room, what we know 
is that God has made these waters, which represent chaos, still as sparkling crystal at his feet, which the very first thing that, John, that God wants us to know through this vision that he gave to John is that God is the kind of God who makes order out of chaos, that God calms the crazy waters, the crazy chaos waters of life. Some of you need that, need that word, and you need that image just, just now. And if so, then receive it, and feel free to do with the rest of what you want. But know that at the very first thing that John wants you to know about God is that from his throne, those chaotic waters sit at his feet. That, I think, is such a hopeful word. In the center and around the throne were four living beings. These are one of the images that gets a little bizarre. But listen to this. Each covered with eyes front and back. So parents, have you ever thought that your mom had eyes in the back of her head? Whoa. Watch out now. Watch out. She does. That's right. Amen. I'm amening out there to you guys. I mean, how do you know that's a good message, right? All right. Anyhow, whatever. Here we go. The first of these living beings was like a lion, the chief of all wild animals. The second was like an ox, the chief of all domestic animals. The third had a human face like ours, the chief of all creation, people made in the very image of God, you and me. And then the fourth image was like an eagle in flight, chief of all winged creatures in air and sea. Essentially, each one of these living beings together represent the whole totality of creation, the fullness of creation itself. And together, they say day after day and night after night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever these living beings give glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, and John reminds us this is the one who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders then fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, and John feels the need to just mention one more time in case you forgot, the one who lives forever and ever. And then they, these elders, they laid their crowns before the throne, signifying that the people of God in the fullness of all God's church know who the true king really is. And then they say, you are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, not us, not the church, not the people of God, but you created all things. And then listen to this. They exist because you created what you pleased. Man, what a good word. This, this rounds out the chapter four. But what a good word that God created everything on heaven and on earth, and it pleased him to do so. Not a single one of you exists on this planet, and not a single thing exists in heaven without God intentionally creating it and without God being pleased to do it. That is the very, that's the end of the first part of this image, is that everything belongs to God and God is so good. And God is so pleased with what he created. God's not necessarily pleased with sometimes what we do, but God is always pleased with you. John continues this great observation in chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw a scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. So now John has given us this great observation of what's going on here. And then John gives us an observation of of a moment that, of of an instant of what happens in the throne room. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. This scroll, which a lot has been made of this scroll, this scroll essentially depicts on how, the, how God intends to set the world right again, on how God intends to right the wrongs of the world. And so listen to what happens next in verse 2. And John says he saw a strong angel who shouted with a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals in this scroll and open it? But... 
No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Essentially, no created being, no created being in heaven, no created being on earth, no created being under the earth could open the scroll and set the world back to right. And so in verse 4, John admits that he began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read from it. And I, I think this moment here is such a human moment. Such a powerful human moment. Because John wept. Why? Because no one could open up the scroll. No created person could open up the scroll and set the world back to right. Could right the wrongs. And it made me think as I was studying this passage and reflecting on it myself, it made me think, how many times have I wept because of the very same thing? How many times have I wept with some of you because of the very same thing? Because of a wrongful death, because of something that shouldn't have happened to you that happened, a wrong done to you or done to someone you love that should have never happened. And we weep because we want to make that wrong right. And so long as we live on this side of heaven, we deal with the consequences of those things. And we weep together. And John wept from the throne room of God because of the very same reason. What a human moment here within this, within this beautiful image that God gave us. And so John continued, but then one of the 24 elders said to me, stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir to David's throne, has won the victory. He is worthy to open the scroll and seven seals. So John hears, John, John's in the midst of weeping, uh, in the midst of mourning over the fact that the world would never be set back to rights until one of the elders comes and says to him, listen, stop weeping. Because in fact, there is one worthy to open the scroll. And it's the lion, the tribe of Judah, the very lion that we sang about just a few moments ago, the lion that's roaring with power and that's winning the victory. And so John, I'm sure he's, yeah, this is fantastic. And so he looks to the throne to find the lion. But then in verse 6, we see something altogether different. In verse 6, John says that he looks for the lion, but then I saw a lamb that looked as if it had been slaughtered. That's not what we're expecting to see. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings and the 24 elders. He, was, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which is another bizarre image that we're reading here, which represents the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent out to every part of the earth. Here, John hears of the lion, but then when he looks to the throne, he sees the, he sees the lamb. He hears the victory of God, but then he also sees something meek and vulnerable, something slaughtered. And not just that, but something with seven horns and seven eyes. And this number seven in apocalyptic literature, as some of you might know, it represents this, this sense of wholeness, this sense of perfection. And so essentially this, this slaughtered lamb, something meek and vulnerable, something bloodied here has seven horns, which means all perfect power, that God is just and right with his use of power. But it's on this lamb. And then the seven eyes mean all perfect vision. Nothing is outside of God's vision. But once again, it's, it's united with this lamb. And then the sevenfold spirit of God means an all-perfect God, once again, with the, with the lamb. So John hears the lion, sees the lamb, but then sees the image that we now know as Jesus Christ. The image of the lion in the Old Testament coming together with the image of the lamb in the New Testament for the very first time in all of Scripture represented in the, in the victory of the crucified Jesus, who is the all-powerful all-seeing, all-perfect God. That's what's standing right in front of God's throne. And then not to mention that, this, I think, is the most powerful image in all of Scripture when John says the following in verse 7. He, being the Lamb, stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. 
And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. In fact, God's so close to your salvation with, with this lamb right in front of him. Every, everything that God sees, everything that God does, everything with which God rules is all done through Jesus. It's all right there. The fullness of God's church is behind the lamb. The, the, the beings are behind the lamb. All of the heaven is behind the lamb. Everything on earth is behind the vision of, this, of Jesus Christ. So everything that God does is ruled through your salvation. It's, through, it's ruled through the very means of your redemption. In fact, God's so close to you that your prayers of hope and joy and mourning and loss and excitement and your dream, all of it, all of it comes to God through the incense that reaches his nostrils. I mean, all of it comes through God experientially as sweet incense. And then we read in this very nice part, I mean, it's just, it's just so captivating. I want to make sure I... <laughs> and in verse 9, and so they sang a new song together. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation, which I see represented right here in our church. 57 nations in our church. Multiple languages represented right here at the Coral Gables campus and not to mention church online. I mean, this is the fullness of God's church being worked out in every church and especially right here at our church. And then this is what, this is what the elders are saying. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. This is you. This is, this is you and me. This is the church now in our world. This is people in our city not yet here that God has given them this great mission that as we come off our throne and let God come on it, that we get to be the very agents of his mission right here and right now. Not for the sake of our magic kingdoms. Not for the sake of what we can build and do on our own, but for the sake of God's kingdom but yet we get to use and put to use our skills, our gifts, our abilities, our love, our friendships, our relationship, our lives, our families, all put to that good use. Our hands now set for a good purpose. I mean, that's a wow factor if I've ever heard one. This is a wow factor. This is God just opening up his throne room and blowing us away with what's inside. But even then, it's not finished yet. John continues on with this, with this vision. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. That's a hundred million voice choir, if any of you were keeping track. They circled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice, they were saying, in addition to everything that was happening on the, on the throne with the elders and with the four beings, these angels are also crying out to God, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then John says he heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the sea and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And then the four living creatures representing the fullness of creation, they all just say amen and they fall down alongside of the elders. This is the glorious image that God allowed the church 
only by his grace and mercy to see and experience so that we would come to know him as a trustworthy God. That, in my opinion, is the ultimate wow factor. These are the two most majestic passages in all of scripture and the image of Jesus Christ being everything through which God sees and being our vision to our heavenly father is the most glorious wow factor image in all of scripture. This is it. This is it. And we get to participate in it. We learn that God is for us and not against us. And these passages each bear witness from his throne room just how much God desires to be your God. He can provide you with the awe and wonder-filled life that all of us want. He can provide us with the true satisfaction that all of us are seeking. This is, what, this is exactly why he showed us. There's nothing left on the table. God has revealed everything. God has made himself known to us through the person of Jesus Christ, his character and his work. And then God said, you know what? Let's open up the, let's open up the throne room. Just, just so that all of the world knows that there is nothing hidden. There's no hidden agenda with God. There are no hidden fees. How many times have you talked with someone and they felt disregarded by God or they felt this, or they left the faith entirely because they felt like God had some kind of secret agenda that, that made them think that God was out to get them? I've had countless conversations like that. But here we are seeing that God has demonstrated exactly the opposite. And as we align our life to the way of our true king, your heavenly father invites you to reign alongside of him as his prince and his princess. What an amazing image. I'll admit here that when Bill asked me to teach on Revelation 4 and 5, my first thought was, how in the world do I, oh, how in the world do I do this? But I thought to myself, just share it. Just read it. Because this is God's word for you. Whether you believe it, whether you don't believe it, it doesn't make it any less true. This is God's word for you. That's why Jesus taught us to pray when we do pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your, your name. A confession of his holiness, a confession of his lordship. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in Miami-Dade, in our families, in our workplace, as it is in heaven. That's, that's one of the greatest confessions that, that we can make. And that confession begins eternity right now for you. For those who believe that, for those of you who want to believe that, that confession begins eternity for you right now. Your life goes on because the perfect power and perfect love of an all-perfect and true king snatched you from death's grip. That's what makes your heavenly father so worthy of your surrender because God is the only one from his throne who could do such a thing, who could snatch you up from death's grip. No one can do that, not even you. Not even you as you build your own kingdom. You can't do it. That's the one thing you can't do is, is keep that from happening. And it will happen. But as you do so, your life can live on to eternity. And then we get to glimpse that here and now when we gather together as a church. We get to glimpse that here and now as we, as we sing songs of praise and set our lives on mission together. Now, maybe you've gotten caught up Maybe you've gotten caught up in yourself and you've distorted this perfect power and perfect love into self-fulfilled glory or self-seeking sex or whatever it might be. And I just would tell you, if, if you have done that, then join the club of humanity. Because all of us have done that at some point in our lives. Every single one of us have, myself included. 
but the good news of what Revelation 4 and 5 tell us. And the reason why God opened up his throne room is because God wants to know that he's not smacking us around for it. He's not going to punish you for it. If anything, God opened his door and Jesus is now knocking on your door. And he's simply saying, will you let me in? Will you let me, will you let me come in? Will you let me still the waters? Will you let me heal? Will you let me be the king who sits on your throne? And in coming off your throne and letting God come into yours, that's, that's all that God is asking you to do. God's not going to, there's no hidden, there's nothing hidden here. That's the beauty of what this passage represents. God's kingdom is big enough for all of us and for you to be you. For you to be you with all of your, with all of your history, with all of your fears, with all of your skills, with all of your joys, your dreams, your hopes, all of it. God, there's room for you to be you and to let God begin that healing process from within as he comes in and sits on the throne of your life. There's room in mercy's arms for you, for you who's weary and worn down, for you who feels like you've been pretending every day for the last season, for you who's been hurt, for you who is hurting, for you who has been faking, whatever it might be for you, there's room in mercy's arms and the arms of your king for you. And Jesus is just standing there knocking. He's knocking. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's that. That's the promise for you. <coughs> Confession of his lordship and the surrendering of your life into his trustworthy hands will lead you from getting caught up in yourself to then getting caught up into eternity. In fact, so get caught up in the praise and seek glimpses of eternity in the here and now. At sunrise, first light, first thought, seek first the kingdom of God and all of, and all of God's righteousness will come to you. So seek first the promise of God in your day, in every situation, in every instance, in every temper tantrum with your kids, in every, in every issue at home, at work, in every traffic jam, if you can even believe that, that God will meet you there and get a glimpse into eternity. At high noontime, when the heat is on and the pressures of this life feel stacked against you, don't waver, but worship the true God to fight the good fight for you. And as you do so, glimpse eternity here and now at midnight. When the darkness feels so overwhelming and you feel beaten up and alone with the voice of praise, God can light up your night and you, yes, you can glimpse eternity here and now. And then as you do so, just get caught up in God's mission. Get caught up in God's redemptive mission as you begin to live it out in your own life, in the conference room, in the living room, wherever you may be living, get caught up in God's redemptive mission and let God begin to rightly order your responsibilities. Now, Please don't misunderstand that as you surrender and let God do that. This isn't a passive acknowledgement of your responsibilities. It's a right ordering of your responsibilities that it's now being used in your, your relationships. Your, everything that you do is now being used to advance the kingdom of God without your own agenda being attached. That's how you rightly order it. And it's a daily surrender for every single one of us. But that's why God gave us the great community of this, the church, to do it together that you're not alone, and that when we stumble and we fall, we can pick each other up and we can keep going together because we're the church together at this campus at 11 o'clock, at 1230, at 9.30, at Kendall Campus, and all the great faithful churches in our city, that we can do this together, that we can let God and the Holy Spirit within us rightly order our convictions, our responsibilities, and we can be the very princes and princesses 
designed and called to carry out God's redemptive mission here and now. And man, that's what I get from this. And I'm struggling with this too every single day. But my hope when I wake up is that today is a new day and that there's room in mercy's arms for me. There's rooms in mercy's arms for you, no matter what your past may hold, no matter what your future lies ahead, that we can all do this together and let Jesus redeem us from the inside out as we invite him into our throne. So let that be our prayer today as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for giving us a glimpse into your throne room, for allowing us to see, for whatever reason, something so awesome, so tremendous, so unbelievable even, that you would do that for us to show yourself trustworthy and to show us that you are God who is for us. And so Lord, as we, as we do the hard work of slowing down. Lord, in your grace and in your mercy, help us in your spirit to simply believe and trust. You are a God who is so for us, who's done nothing to show yourself otherwise. God, you, your, your perfect love, your perfect power is for us. And so Lord, in the power of your spirit, help us come off our throne today and for you to find your place in our heart so that we can lead, lead well, create with humble hands, speak with uplifting words. Lord, we ask these things in your name. If today, if you, if you feel a desire to, to come off your throne and to let God sit on it, and reign perfectly and give you peace to calm the waters of your life. It won't be easy. Every day is a continuous surrender. But if you feel so led to make that decision now, then would you pray this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I've heard you knocking on my door of my throne room. And today I'm opening it up and I'm letting you come in. I'm coming off it and I'm going to trust in your provision, I'm going to trust in your peace, I'm going to trust in your salvation and redemption. So Lord, forgive me where I've made my own way. Forgive me for those moments where I've caused pain. Help me forgive others where they've caused pain in my life. Lord, I am yours and I put my life in your hands, in your arms, as I trust in your name. If you prayed that prayer with me today, then would you raise your hand and let me pray a prayer of blessing on you? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you over to my far left. Thank you. Father, we thank you for this glimpse. God, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that you've made a way for us, that you've snatched us from death's certain grip to give us new life right now that extends into eternity. And so God, I pray for our church. I pray that you give us the courage to be the kind of church that shares this good news with everybody that we, that we encounter. I pray that you send us out into our city, into our county, into our workplaces, into our homes. And we can live this way of love. We can live this way of peace. Lord, help us. We are yours. And we walk into eternity together. Lord, we love you and we make this prayer in your name. Amen.